Well, welcome back to our study on Thessalonians, a clearer or a better view. I apologize for the glasses today. Uh, I've been having some vision issues, and so this makes it easier uh, to do the talk with the lights and to see the screen. Well, coming back into our study on 1 Thessalonians and uh, understanding where we're, we're about to go, Paul has been really emphasizing some key uh, key points about family. And I want to start off by just suggesting and reminding you that these Thessalonians, um, they have been through a complete shift of how they think about the world, how they think about life. And it has come at a cost. And so um, I've referenced this a little bit last week, but their, their relationships uh, with those who are around them are changing. And uh, as we see in this period of time, there is in the Roman world a growing skepticism of Christians. And in fact, they'll come to be called the atheists because they are not following the Roman gods. And ultimately, this will they'll become scapegoats. They'll become, uh, the name Christian becomes synonymous in Rome as the people we blame for whatever is going wrong. So because of that, and although it's not reached the full measure yet when Paul writes this letter, uh, they're beginning to feel ostracized, uh, put out, um, less welcome. Uh, life is getting difficult for them from their peers and those in their family who don't understand uh, why they're not going along uh, with some of the things that just are widely accepted in their culture. I think there are a lot of people today who could relate to that in the present time, uh, because when you come to Christ and you really begin to understand that that uh, you are bought with a price and that you are not your own and that you are called to be sanctified and holy and and you're supposed to be uh, filtering your actions through the uh, filter of holiness and what God would want and not just doing whatever we feel like we want to do, well that's going to cause us to make some different choices about what we do and, and how we do things. And because of that, uh, even today, sometimes people are like, are you too good for us? Why don't you want to hang out with us anymore? Why don't you want to go to the club? Or why don't you want to do this or that? And, of course, people are quick to remind us of what we've done in the past and say, well, you didn't used to care. You know, Why are you so good now? Some of you, I think, can relate to that. You've heard those kinds of things being said. So understanding that really puts into perspective of uh, the familial words that Paul uses over and over and over uh, in this book. And in fact, he's going to start today with a phrase, brothers and sisters. And he uses this term brother seven times, and he uses familial terms of family over a dozen times uh, in these letters. And in doing so, he's He's really establishing something that's powerful. That is that the church is a family. And that in the family, in the, in the family of God, we say sometimes, in that family, um, for some people, that becomes, um, well, it becomes a place where people rejected by their family or by their peers find that they still have a connection and they still have a place to worship and I want to be really clear. I think we want to still be uh, represent Christ well to our families and to our friends, even if uh, they don't always like uh, that we might not be about some things that they're about. 
uh, or some things that the world is about, uh, we still want to be kind, right? As much as it depends on you, Romans 12 tells us, live at peace with everyone. And so we want to work towards that goal. Well, let's dive into the text today. And, and this is a very interesting series of, of, of passages we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. We begin with this phrase uh, in the very first one, as for other matters. So Paul's making a transition here. Brothers and sisters, that familial term, uh, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And I want to make this the, the very center of Paul's message is that, listen, uh, there is one God and we should live our lives to please him. And this is very important to his message. It's clear from the very beginning, uh, Paul said, listen, you want to live your life in a way that actually pleases God. And he says, you know what instructions uh, we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important to us. a number of things in the fourth chapter we'll read today that uh, while Paul sometimes does say, hey, I have an opinion and he'll say, uh, this is coming from me, not from the Lord. In chapter four of Thessalonians, the first letter, uh, Paul frequently is saying, listen, um, Jesus wants you to know this. This comes directly from the Lord. And there are many people who could make such a claim, but few who have the credentials to back it up. But, but Paul, Peter, the other apostles have been present with Jesus. Paul, in a miraculous way, after his events uh, on the road to Damascus and then the teaching that Jesus does to Paul uh, and Peter and the others, of course, during their lifetime and the three years that they walk with Jesus. So he says, this is important for you to hear and to know. Now he says in the third verse, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. This is a word that we sometimes misunderstand, but at the very core of this word is sanctification is to be holy or to be made holy. And and his words here are, as it's God's will that you should live a holy life. And what is a holy life? Well, God is the embodiment of holiness. And so we are, we are trying to live our life the way that Jesus lived his, sacrificially, lovingly, generously, uh, helping, uh, all those attributes that we saw in Jesus, um, well, that's part of what a holy life looks like. Secondly, there's this concept throughout the Bible from old and new that holiness has a concept of being set apart. It has something special. The, the Levites were set apart for the Lord. They had a special role to play. And holiness is the idea that you and I also have been set apart by God. Um, that when we came to faith, when we came to Christ, uh, that that we are somehow made different from who we were before. Uh, there's a transformation that takes place in our lives. And this is important to Paul for the Thessalonians. He's not under any kind of an illusion. He understands the world of that time. And I just want to give you a kind of a quick contrast before we get into the next verses because it sets the stage for some comments Paul will make about morality. In, in the Roman world of Paul's day, especially there in Thessalonica, uh, there was a whole different way of thinking than what existed in Jerusalem uh, and the Hebrew or the Israelite culture. 
or that Jewish culture, um, it was a community-focused culture. But there's no mistaking that in the Roman world, it was very individualistic. Uh, it was very much not what's good for everyone, but what's good for me. And in addition to that, when it comes to sexuality, in the Hebrew culture, this was something that uh, was very much reserved for marriage. It was in the confines of marriage that sexuality was supposed to exist, and it wasn't supposed to exist outside. In, the, in their culture, they did not reinforce that, the idea that it was okay to be anything but chaste and for a relationship to be uh, inside of a marriage. Anything outside of that was not condoned in Jewish society or culture. It was not, it's not to say it never happened, but it's to say that it was against, it was taboo. It wasn't uh, considered normative. Uh, in fact, in the Hebrew culture, that was, it was considered sinful. Well, that's not the case at all in the Roman world in the day that Paul is uh, ministering there. Understand that uh, sexuality is considered something that's it was hidden, secret, private. It was uh, the idea very much like today. Whatever two consenting people want to do, and I would say adults, but in the Roman culture, sadly that was well that wasn't even always the case. Um, but the idea was that people just did whatever was right in their own eyes. If it felt good, so to speak, they did it. And that's what guided their direction. Beyond that, and this is where things got really twisted in the Roman world of the first century and even before that, um, sexuality became a place that uh, was sometimes seen as a spiritual a way of connecting with the gods. And so there were cults, the cult of Dionysus, the cult of Cabrius, and there were other temple cults where they actually, uh, when you would go to worship, uh, you would be encouraged by the religious leaders to engage in sexual immorality with temple uh, prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, uh, in those places. And so sexuality became an act of worship in the pagan or in the Roman world. Now this is in stark contrast. Nowhere in scripture is do we see this uh, as being something God would condone or say was okay. But in the Roman world, this was absolutely acceptable. And, and uh, there was little expectation in the Roman world that when you married someone that you would be exclusively committed to them. Uh, infidelity was rampant at this time. And in fact, it was very abusive to wives because wives were kind of seen as only uh, giving legitimacy to your children. They were not held in high regard. What a contrast to what uh, God had taught even from the beginning about a man respecting his wife and holding her in a in a, in a way of of uh, an elevated sense of value and purpose. Well, that's important because this is Thessalonica, the cult of Cabrius, the cult of Dionysus are both right there in town. They have many many followers. Many people have been a part of these Christians. Some of them in the past have been a part of all this pagan revelry. And um, the pagans had a very different idea about the phrase honoring God with your body. And Paul sees this as saying, listen, if you're a Christian, then honor God in every part of your life. Honor God with your 
your talents. Honor God with your resources. Honor God in your relationships. And in the pagan world, it just wasn't seen that way or understood that way. So Paul is sharing a radically different way of seeing these uh, parts of their lives. A new view, if you will, again. And so he speaks to them here and he begins to tell them uh, in verse 3, it's God's will that you should be holy. And now he's going to talk about some things that, that take away from holiness. And one of those things he says is sexual immorality. He says you should avoid sexual immorality. Uh, you should each learn to control your own body. So in the idea of a culture that says, hey, whatever you feel, go act on it. Paul offers a counter message. He says, no, just because you feel like you want to do something doesn't mean that's what you should do. And he's beginning to say there needs to be some self-control. And he says, control your body and act in a way that is holy and honorable. And remember, uh, marriage is honorable, God says, but all these other relationships are outside the bond of marriage. And he even goes on to say, don't, don't fall into passionate lust like the pagans do, for they do not know God. This is a condemnation, actually, of sorts. Because remember that they are oftentimes engaging in sexual immorality as part of their worship of the Roman gods. And Paul is saying here, listen, they're, they're worshiping, they don't even know who God really is. Don't be like them. Uh, you know what Jesus has done for you. Uh, you have heard the message, you've accepted Jesus. So you're going to act differently. And you're not going to go along with these things. You're not going to be a part of them anymore. He says, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. And uh, this is an interesting phrase that he uses here, but in part, he's, he's really talking about the fact that if you do go and you engage in these things while you're a Christian, uh, you may harm uh, or wrong other brothers and sisters who say, well, he's a Christian and he's doing that. Is it okay for me to do that? Is it okay for me to engage in those things? And this is a problem. Uh, this is a problem. Even today, you know, we have to be really careful that we don't uh, condemn ourselves by what we condone. We don't uh, get involved in things. And it's it's a it's a, it's it's one of those times and those places where um, Paul really says to them, "Listen, you need to understand that this isn't something that goes unnoticed by God, and it's not something that goes unnoticed by your other brothers and sisters in Christ." And what Paul wants to see them do is to live their lives in a way that's an encouragement to their brothers and sisters. And that they see the faithfulness to God in their lives, not the unfaithfulness. Now, we all fall in many ways, and Paul will address that topic as well. But his admonition to them is, be holy, because God's a holy God. He goes a little further here to say, this isn't just affecting uh, you. It affects your relationship with God. And he says, uh, God sees what's happening. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and as we warned you um, before God. For God did not call us to be impure, but God called us to live a holy life. 
here's, here's kind of where Paul's about to head with things. Paul's about to lay out for us a reunion with God, a reunion with Jesus. He's going to tell us about what will be. And he's made the point that Jesus is holy, he's pure, he's good, uh, that he's overcome temptation, he's, he's, he's overcome sin. And his call to us is, let what will be shape what is. Say that again, let what will be, that is what's going to happen with Jesus in the future, let it shape what is today and who you are today. Live today like the person that's going to be united with Christ someday in holiness. Be changed. For God did not call us to be impure. God called us to live a holy life. And God is, uh, and, and Paul is here making quite a statement about uh, some of the things that are happening around them where the people have been misguided and misled into immorality. Now he goes further here because he's he said this once already and he's going to double down that this isn't just something that he's dreamt up. It's not just a Pauline idea. He says this is a message that comes from the Lord. And so he says this then anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And so he's made quite a, a statement here for these Thessalonians. And I think this was one of the major sins, but not the only sin, but one of the major sins uh, that was uh, the characteristic of this community. And I've noticed this, right? There, that sometimes different communities are characterized by other or different types of sins that we fall into in different, uh, different communities. They're more typical there. And in this place, sexual sin was a real thing that was a, a problem in Thessalonica. Now, in verse 9, he continues to say, look, I want you to live your life in a way that's encouraging others and building others up. Now, he acknowledges this is something the Thessalonians mostly have done well. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God uh, to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Again, the idea of families on full display. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you won't be dependent on anybody. He's talking about a changed life here, but he's telling them you're not living it in a life in a way that makes that you want to emphasize as some had wrongly done in Jerusalem. You don't want to make it the point that, hey, we're better than everyone else because we're holy. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, let your gentleness be evident to all. Lead a quiet life. Uh, be faithful and go about doing the little things well. Uh, be kind to your neighbor. Uh, be kind to those. Bless those who curse you. Uh, live your life in a quiet kind of faith. Uh, not necessarily out there shouting to everyone around you, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But to have a faith that if someone does come to you and say, hey, what do you think about this? That you can speak to them honestly. 
and you can share with them honestly. And they'll respect what you say because they respect how you live. There are a lot of things that we can uh, do that impact our world. And our words matter. I think that's very true. Saying the right words can be important. But even more powerful than our words are our actions. This was something that Paul wanted these Thessalonians to know. It's easy to say you're a Christian, but not so easy to live like one. So make sure you live like one. And that means that there will be some things that holy people do differently from those that don't know God. Don't be ashamed of that, and don't be pious and proud of that, but just be that. Be holy. In doing so, uh, you'll win the respect of others. And he says, don't be dependent on others. Well, there's a there's a part of all this that's an interesting thing in the pagan cultures and the cults of uh, that were going on. Um, it developed a kind of uh, uh, addiction, almost like uh, a type of following, and and became something that was uh, incredibly destructive in people's lives, and the people depended in a negative way on these things to um, fuel their energies and their passions. And and his his Paul's emphasis here is, hey, don't don't let anything master you like that. Let your dependence be on God and God alone. Let him be the one that is is vitally important to you in every way. Well, this then leads us to the latter part of this uh, first or this uh, fourth chapter. And in, the, in this point, there's a lot of stuff to get into here because he's about to, to talk about something they were really concerned about. Now, remember, he'd been with them for three weeks, just three weeks. And then he's gone away from them. Uh, he's probably in Corinth writing this letter. We talked last week a little bit about some of the possibilities. But uh, whatever the case may be, he's only been away from them for a relatively short time. But in that time... Uh, a few people who had come to faith have already died. They've passed on. And they're concerned about that. And so they have some questions because they, in their conversion, uh, they Paul had preached Jesus Christ uh, living, dying, being buried, resurrecting, ascending to heaven, and returning. And he had made all of those things a part of his conversation with them. Well, they had heard that, they had had received that, they had believed that, and here we come to this moment where there is a question about uh, what happens to these people who died before Jesus got back. Uh, we believe what you say is true, but but they didn't make it. They they died before the return, and and this tells us a couple of things. One, they expected his return to be pretty imminent, for one thing, and secondly, that they had a very real concern. Uh, and, and it implies maybe had they done something wrong, is there a reason that they didn't make it to the end? And and what does that look like? And so Paul's going to address this. And if some of this feels a little immature to you, then let's cut the Thessalonians some slack. Because they're brand new Christians. I mean, they've only come to faith uh, in a very short window of time. And they have stepped away from so much that was ungodly. And they are coming so far, so fast. But they have some very basic questions that Paul's going to address 
that some might take for granted. But Paul's, Paul's going to say, look, this is important for you to know that just because someone has passed before the return doesn't mean they're lost. And so he's going to address that with them, and he's going to say to them, uh, brothers and sisters, there's that family term again, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so you will not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. This is an important kind of reality to talk about for a moment here. This is, this is something I really want you to understand, that there are two kinds of grief, right? And I've seen them both on display. There, there is... There is the kind of grief that Christians have when they grieve in hope. And they they grieve in a hope, meaning they have reason to believe they will see that brother or that sister again someday. Uh, they had confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, they had tried to live the holy life that God had for them to live. They had accepted the, the blood of Jesus covering over their sins. And so they grieve, not as hopeless people, but hopeful. That, that God's word is true and that God's promises are real and they'll be carried out. There's another kind of grief that happens sometimes. And that is when we have a person who's made no, there's no thing that we can see and we can't know. Only God is, God is the righteous judge. Only God knows. But it's very different when we grieve without a firm sense of hope and a firm sense that we know We'll see that person again someday in heaven. Well, I could go into that in greater depth, but I think you do understand that he says, listen, for those who are in Christ, they grieve, but they grieve in hope. Now, as we go a little farther through this, it says, we believe that Jesus died. We believe that he rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That is those who have died uh, in Christ. Now, this will open up a can of worms, and Paul's talking about death, and there is a question about what happens to us uh, when we die. You know, what, what happens when we die? And uh, I, I like something that Paul says, and jot down this verse. I like something he says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 8. We read these words from the Apostle Paul there, he says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body, but at home with the Lord. To be away uh, from the body is to be present with the Lord. And uh, this is a, a good way of understanding what happens uh, when we die. Now, he says to them here, I don't want you to be ignorant about what happens when we die, when we fall asleep, is the phrase he uses here. For the Lord himself will come down uh, from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now this passage, this is sometimes called the harpazo passage because of uh, the word being caught up. I mean, this comes from a Greek word harpazo. Uh, it's, it's a unique passage of scripture in its description of what happens to us uh, when Jesus returns. And he's basically said, listen, I want you to know uh, what happens to the dead 
And I want you to know what happens uh, to the living. And the point that he really kind of makes here is that, listen, what's important for you to know is that uh, when Jesus comes back, we will all be with him. Uh, all of us will be with him. The dead will be with him. The living who are in Christ will be with him. Uh, he will bring all of us together with him. And uh, it, it's interesting. There's a lot made out of this passage about what would happen next or what the timeline is and, and what other events will happen after we're with Christ. But but Paul doesn't really talk about that here, does he? His, his encouragement to them is, listen, we will be with him forever. And what I want you to gather is, is wherever Jesus leads is great. We'll be with him and we'll be with him forever. Uh, so many things in here do speak and reinforce things we know uh, about the Lord's return. Um, he, he has this idea that, that he'll be coming back and that the angels uh, would be present with him when he returns. And and certainly scripture has given us uh, this idea. First Thessalonians chapter 3.13, Paul already addressed this once. Uh, he says that when the Lord comes back, he will come with all of his holy ones. And so when, when the return Christ happens, that he would have the the saints and he would have the the uh, angels present with them. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 through 31, Jesus said this, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angel with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. This is what Paul is saying to us. This is a reinforcement of what Paul's telling us. Uh, Jesus' own words. And uh, it's an important, an important idea uh, because he speaks to the... Uh, the fact that God knows those who are his own. And um, he will bring us together to be to be with him. And that's very important for us to remember that. Second um, Peter chapter 3 has an interesting passage I want you to hear uh, as well. From Second Peter it says, Dear friends, this now is my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. Pause. What Paul start off talking in this chapter about this very idea People who are following their own desires instead of God's desires. So Paul and Peter really line up. There's not some huge difference in their eschatological thinking. Uh, they're very similar. In fact, Paul reinforces many of the same things that Peter does. Peter goes on and he says, They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. 
And the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter understood something that was missing, I think, in some ways for these Thessalonians. Their expectation was that God would come immediately in their lifetime. I think a lot of people thought that in the first century. And they were hopeful. But Christianity at that time was spreading. Remember, there was still a large portion of the world that had not even yet heard uh, who Jesus was. And so God uses time to his benefit and to his favor to try to make sure that the gospel message is preached to the entire world, to all people. And so he reminds us God's patience and his return is just making sure everyone has a chance to come to repentance, to accept Jesus. But that shouldn't make us think he's not going to return. For the day of the Lord, Peter wrote, was going to come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Jesus is going to return. When Paul spoke to the Thessalonians, he wanted them to understand that there was no worry for the dead, that they would be with Christ. And there was no worry for the living, for they also would be caught up. That's that word harpazo. That's that word sometimes in the Latin uh, Bible. That's the word retro, which we would call the rapture. Uh, but but it's this idea that there is a moment where the Christians will be caught up with Christ and the twinkling of an eye will be changed. This isn't a foreign concept. It's happened across the Bible in different ways uh, already. I want you to think for a moment back to the Old Testament, the story in Genesis of the man named Enoch. It says Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. He was taken into heaven. He was snatched away. Uh, he was brought up into the presence of God. We know that the prophet Elijah is carried to heaven on a whirlwind of fire. He doesn't taste death uh, in the way that we, we think of death. He was, he was caught up. Uh, we have a real sense of Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, being caught up for a moment with Elijah and Moses uh, before Peter and uh, the apostles that are there. Uh, it was a powerful moment of being caught at when, the, when we read at the end of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry, that he is ascending, we call this the ascension, he's ascending uh, into heaven. Uh, this idea of being snatched or caught up or brought up by God. And, and that's the same word that is used here uh, to describe what will happen to Christians. That when the time comes, we too would be caught up, that we would be present with God. Uh, it's a word that Paul uses elsewhere to talk about himself even, uh, that he uh, will be caught up, had been caught up with Christ uh, when he was uh, was being taught by him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this. Uh, I want you to hear these words. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Paul says, that's foolishness. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of weed or something else. But God gives it a body as he determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. 
And not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies that are not that, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars, and the stars differ from stars in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that's sown imperishable is raised imperishable. We are changed. Though sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Though sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. And so it is that he gives us this powerful teaching uh, about what's to come. In that same passage, Corinthians, he goes on to say, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I saw that in a nursery one time. I thought that was very apropos for infants. We will not all sleep, we'll all be changed. He says it will happen in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. I said something earlier, and I want you to think about this. If we are going to be changed in the future, begin living today in view of what we will be in the future. And that does mean that we change, that we clothe ourselves with Christ, or we at least attempt to, uh, every single day. Now, Paul said an interesting thing to close out his letter. He said, be encouraged, encourage each other with these things. I think there's probably a time in our life where we think, I hope the Lord doesn't return yet. I want to experience life. I want to graduate. I want to drive. I want to do these things. And so I think there's a youthful, childlike kind of understanding that says, I hope he waits for a while. Then I've noticed as people go on through life and they're older, so like, I, ho I hope he comes back soon, uh, that they can escape the aches and pains and groans and moans that go with aging. Paul says for all of us, old, young, in the middle, live your life in a expectant hope for Jesus will always do what he says. Every word of the Lord is true. And if Jesus said, I am coming back, then you need to believe that. What is more? And I, I don't pretend to have a I to know at what moment the Lord will return. No one knows that but God himself. But it only stands to reason that we are even closer to his return today than we were in the beginning. And if Paul's admonitions to them to be ready were meant to inspire them at that time, even though the return of Christ we now know was far off, how much more should we heed his words today when nearly 2,000 years has come to pass since Christ was on the earth. And surely we grow closer every moment to that twinkling of an eye, to that flash when everything changes. Paul said, be encouraged by that. Be encouraged to know that maybe even before this broadcast ends today, Jesus may return. We don't know when he's coming back, but we know he's coming back. And when he comes back, we will be with him. Christians will be with him. And in that moment, we will all be united and we will be together. 
And I encourage you not to get so hung up on whatever it is that he will do next and what that's going to look like. Because all that will really matter is we're with him. And if we're with Jesus, things are going to be okay. He's the one who calms the storms. He's the one who speaks the words, peace, be still. He's the one who hurls our adversary into the pit. And he is the one who reigns forever. May Christ's name be praised. And may we continue to walk with a new view, a focus on things of heaven, a focus on holiness instead of on the stuff of earth. This was an encouragement to them. May it be an encouragement to us. I look forward to seeing you back next week.